Here's your host, Alex Garrett. And it is Sunday. I have not done a Sunday pod in a little bit, but I wanted to because I've got a big interview this week with the historian and actually Revolutionary War reenactor. You know, he's a historian as well. His name is Rich Howell, and I met him dressed as a member of the First Continental Army, you know, Army uh, down in Philly on July the 4th. Here he is, Richard Howell. I met him outside Independence Hall. Where we first met, you were walking around in your colonial gear and uh, as if you were part of the First Continental Army, and I gravitated to you right away. So thanks for joining me a month later. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Alex. So talk to me. What What's going on uh, with the Declaration of Independence update? Because I know that we were there on the 4th, but there was a big signing celebration just a week ago, wasn't there? I don't, there may have been. And I, I guess when you talk about the Declaration of Independence, um, in the name of trying to uh, change the story or in the words of some to eliminate myths, they create myths that are even greater than the ones they purport to correct. And um, August 2nd was a date where a number of the members signed, but that was not the signing date as we know it. And um, just to back up a little bit, when, when Congress voted for the Declaration of Independence, or when they voted for the Resolution of Independence, we know that was July 2nd. Many of us know that. Uh, however, it was not made official until the 4th of July, which is why that date became the, uh, the day we celebrate. It was not an accident. It wasn't a misunderstanding. It was very deliberate. Um, and that was the date that it was signed by the President of Continental Congress and attested by the Secretary, who was not a voting member. Um, and Jefferson, Adams, and Franklin all attest to the day they died, Adams and Jefferson 50 years later, that they had signed it on the 4th of July. So many members were there. Ironically, and maybe not so ironically if you know the story or understand what was going on, a lot of members didn't stay. After the second, many of them had to leave. There was a war afoot, and many of them had the seat of war in their very backyards at various stages, or they were called away to different services in their states. Uh, so not all of those men were there to sign the declaration on the 4th, and that would that would have included Robert Livingston, who was one of the Committee of the Five, along with Adams Jefferson and uh, Franklin and uh, Roger Sherman from Connecticut, Livingston from New York. He had to leave immediately, so he was not there for the 4th nor the 2nd, but his brother, Philip, would be, and he would sign much later on. In fact, we think he may have even signed as late as November. Uh, they were so where, did, where does August 8th come in? Because I heard that in our tour at Independence Hall, if I'm not mistaken. I heard it, too. And um, and they do that there. Uh, you know, basically, it depends who preps the people for it, the story they, they want to put forward. Um, the August 2nd date came because a number of the members who had to leave Continental Congress in, in that part of July uh, the vote initially was going to take part on the 1st, but because of some uh, last-minute um, changing, like in South Carolina, uh, Delaware even, uh, they had to postpone it a day. Uh, and I think many of the members may have had, and I, I can't die on this, but I think this is a reason. We're planning to leave probably within a few days, and they had to kind of stick around a little bit longer or leave much more quickly than they intended to because they're pressing business to attend to. Thomas McKean is the one man that all of the August 2nd primary signing hold their 
um, their provenance from because he had stated that nobody signed it on the 4th, although I don't know if he actually said that. Uh, but, you know, they signed it on the 2nd. Now, Thomas McKean was not present on the 4th of July. He was one of the men who had to leave the area. And he had to, in Delaware, and he had, he had to go back to his home state, which wasn't far, comparison, you know, comparatively speaking, as to the others. And um, he had signed it on the 2nd. So, you know, it's unclear as to what McCain actually meant, whether he was just speaking for himself and members who signed it on the 2nd, uh, or, or, or somebody just extrapolated that, well, nobody signed it on the 4th. And it's led to a lot of what I would consider confusion, unnecessarily. Um, you know, there's so much about the document that we overlook that we wrangle on things like this. Well, let's not wrangle anymore because I've got a, a, an actual question also that, um, you know, they say how hot it was on July 4th, 1776. And it was hot this year, sure. But you're in that colonial gear, sort of a cosplay, sort of an honor to those in the First Continental Congress. But those guys wore that for real in the heat, didn't they? They did. Um I happen to have a woolen uniform on that was a continental um, general uniform, officer uniform. Would have been the same for any of the staff and even some of the men uh, on occasion. Um, and many of them may have had linen. I mean, there's a huge controversy in the reenactment community and the living history community as to what the proper clothing is, and everybody has an opinion. We do strive to be as accurate as possible, and we've really had cleaned up the act in the last 40, 50 years. However, uh, a little longer. Uh, however, sometimes it's overdone. There would have been cloths or linens available in the summer weather. They would have certainly, like we did, had clothing that would have been a little more comfortable in the summer than in the winter. Uh, it was unusually hot, uh, according to the congressional records, that week. Uh, I mean, July in Philadelphia was hot when you and I were down there. So I don't think it was too much different because it was extremely hot at that point when we were there. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, some of them may have had clothing like that, certainly. Uh, and they certainly would have had their overcoats off at a certain point in time, particularly being in that, in that you know, hot room. There's no doubt about that. Or very, and the powdered wigs, can't forget that. Got that, too. Of course, you know, they may have kept some of that on. They probably took some of it off. I mean, don't forget, that room was closed uh, to anybody on the outside. Those, those deliberations were kept very private. So it wasn't like you had, you know, people peering through the windows. Uh, seeing what they were doing. All right. Um, let me ask you this one, because I don't know how many outfits that guys in the reenactment community have, but you have a lot of outfits. I'm sure those in the community might want to hear how many outfits you've got. Ah, well, I myself, if I had to take a quick count, I have at least five, maybe six. Um, I mean, one of the groups I belong to was the Lexington Minutemen, so... That would be civilian dress, and so that could double not just for you know militia, um, Minuteman duty, train band duty, as some of the New England forces were known as from Old England uh, that came from, um, and to the Continental uniform that you had seen, which is very opulent and used more along you know later war occasions, or sometimes early war. Um, and I also have what is called a court suit, which would have been the equivalent of more formal wear, or has formal wear, what the equivalent of formal wear is today. Uh, and, um, you know, that that's another one. And I have some, you know, lighter clothing, and I have, you know, different uniforms from different groups I belong to, from the Dragoon Regiment, Second Continental Light Dragoons, to the United Train of Artillery to what I 
to hunting shirts. Uh, so it, it runs a vast panoply of, of clothing. All right. Well, I, I know you're in the reenactment community, so tell us, what's your favorite battle reenact? I know you do it in Lexington and elsewhere. And we talked about Williamsburg, so I'm sure you've hit up all these different, uh, Williamsburg, yeah, uh, all those different spots, but what's your favorite? Oh, I, I would have to say uh, it's hard to pick one. Obviously, the one that's among my favorite is Lexington because that's where it started, and we actually are able to recreate it on the Comet, what is known as Lexington Green today, where they would have drilled where their church had been, where the battle and the fight actually took place, not just that morning, but later in the afternoon when the British forces under different circumstances had made their way back to town. Um, Bunker Hill would be, but you really can't do a whole lot there on that site, so sometimes it's done off-site. Uh, Yorktown was enjoyable. Uh, although, then again, we did it on the state site, which was off the National Park site, but I think for the 250th, they'll move it back. Uh, Mammoth was very enjoyable. It's a state site in Philadelphia, one of the most consequential battles of the American Revolution, and really the most decisive battle in the North, or the last decisive battle in the North. They had one other in Springfield uh, later on, but Mammoth in, in uh, 1778 was the pinnacle for that. Um, I'd been down some battlefield. Driftwood Courthouse, tremendous, North Carolina. Very pivotal battle, huge. Um, and for the first time, I'm going to be attending Brandywine uh, in, in, uh, not too far from there, not too far from, from Philadelphia in September. Very cool. Rich, I've got a, Rich Howells, who we we're talking to, a historian, a reenactment, uh, you know, American Revolution, Battle of Lexington, covers a, a lot of ground, as did our, you know, military members fighting for the independence those years from 75, 76. Um, but Richard, those in the community that may not know this, uh, what got you fired up to, to be a you know, historian, a reenactor, and where'd you get your love of history from? Was it from a young age? It was. Um, you know, ever since I was a boy, you know, we took trips up to, to Bunker Hill. Uh, we, we took trips uh, to different places. Um, when I was, 10 years old, just about, not quite 10 years old, the bicentennial had started. And so that was a big, big situation. I was in the Boy Scouts at that point, and my town in Wilbraham, Massachusetts, was one of the towns uh, on the Knox Trail, when Henry Knox had brought the cannon from Ticonderoga to Dorchester Heights in Boston, and Washington was able to drive out Howland the British forces from Boston um, that March in 1776, uh, actually St. Patrick's Day, evacuation day in Boston as well. Uh, and from there, it just grew. We would do plays, but I always, from a young age, liked it. We had busts of George Washington around, other historical figures, and I always gravitated to it. So I was a, you know, a researcher. Uh, I was a, you know, a student of history long before I became a reenactor. That didn't start till 2003. And the reason I was slow to get into it was because I saw some reenactments. Some folks did a better job than others, and if I was to do it, I wanted to make sure it was real. Uh, my career was in full swing, so I didn't have a lot of time at that point in my mind for extracurricular activities. But uh, in my town, when I was chairman of the Historical Commission, we decided to commission a series of tapes uh, for the town history. And uh, a couple of people had showed up. One person in particular had showed up and said, gee, you know, I belong to a horseshoe a tribune unit. I said, well, that's interesting. I don't know if I really want it. But I said, you have horses, and you guys do it for real. And I like the uniform, and I like the way they did things, so that's where I got my start. And that was, gosh, 19 years ago now, over 19 years ago. Well, at least those when tapes were not destroyed. I'm sure you've kept them, right? I have them all. Yes, I have most all. I mean, there was one, 
had worn so many times and I had been in the mishap. So that kind of went by the wayside. I had to replace it. But everything else I still have. Do they ever do the Paul Revere, uh, you know, riding through town saying the British are coming in Lexington? They do. And what happens is you have a man, a couple of them, one of them is a friend of mine, um, who, who takes that role on. And, uh, you know, he only uh, he only rides basically from where the green is to where the parsonage, the Hancock Clark House is. And that was named after the first two ministers in Lexington, really. Um, one was actually the grandson-in-law of the other. And... Um, and also married John Hancock's cousin. I was going to being the first minister. So that's where the ride ends. That is where Revere and then later Dodge joins him, which really would have happened. And, uh, and then they, they ride back together. And then just before you hit the common, they veer off to the left and uh, dismount. But yes, they do do that. You know, you mentioned Hancock. I believe it was the last signature. Of course, it's the biggest one on there, but it's the last signature, isn't it? No, he was the first. Sorry, so he's the first. So uh, I had thought they were waiting on someone else on August. Like, the way it came to me at the Independence Hall was they were still waiting on others through those weeks to finally sign. I thought Hancock was one of them that they waited on, but I might have misheard that. No. And the odd thing is, and this is why I say, you know, it's important to have the discussion because it is out there. And to me, it just serves to confuse the issue more, sometimes deliberately. Uh, Sometimes people just think, oh, hey, I know something most people don't know, and it makes them look good. Uh, even for people who advocate the August 2nd date, most all of them can see that Hancock signed it on the 4th of July. He had to have because the president, as the president of Continental Congress, would have had to make that official by signing it. And again, others would have signed on it, too, just to show that they supported this. It was not just another resolution they passed. This was big. And the July 4th date is there because that's the day it becomes official. They voted to do it on the 2nd. They basically said we are already independent and this is how it should be. And that's a whole other discussion for another day. But it's official. The Declaration of Independence and the document itself is official on the 4th. Um, and, of course, as I said earlier, Adams, Hancock and Jefferson and a couple of others uh, also attested they signed it that day. Um, the second was when a number well, I didn't of hear wrong, though. I thought I heard something different. You did. But uh, it, it's not. If you look at the congressional record, um, they do talk about the second date. They also talk about the fourth date being signed. So, uh, no, that is not inaccurate. And to my mind, you can either take the word of Thomas McCain, and again, we're not even sure exactly everything he said, but they use him, uh, or you can rely on Adams, Jefferson, and Franklin. And I know, you know they were just some of the members of our country. Yeah, McCain was too, by the way. Uh, none of those men were slouches by any stretch. Um, but I, again, the McCain quotes, the one that is used and in my opinion, not, not, not genuinely or accurately used. Um, you know, Richard, he was not even there. The most sad part of all this though, we have to talk about it is people actually want to start boycotting July 4th. How do you boycott that? I mean, the fact is the founding fathers gave you the right to do whatever the hell you want, but at least respect America in the process. Well, that's what you call deconstructionism. And I want to be careful when I say this because not everybody that, that, that promotes this falls into that category, but they, they do go down that path and give some credence to it, which is why I'm such a stickler for detail, accuracy, and you know what was the case with the signing of the declaration because that leads down to, well, you know, they really voted for it on a second. It was a big mistake to make it on the fourth, and they really didn't sign it that day. They signed it later on, and not everybody that signed it 
was there when they signed it, which is not a big deal, by the way. And that's a number of them, but yeah, maybe eight of them were not there when it was actually voted on, but they still wanted to sign it and were allowed to. And many of the ones who voted for it did not sign it. Um, so, um, yeah, that is part of deconstructionism. Uh, there is a, in my opinion, very pernicious political um, uh, undermining, I would call it treacherous, uh, movement to undermine the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Uh, and they bring up all sorts of facts. Another area of study that you know I've, I've gotten into, obviously, is to answer some of these charges, because that's what's put out there, particularly in the public schools today. It's awful. Uh, colleges, it's, it's just awful with, with, with what is being put out there. And it's, near, it's criminal, in my opinion, to hear some of this um, and, and how they do it. But they do it because it threatens what they want to do. And if people love the 4th of July for right reasons, and the Constitution, because obviously the Constitution was signed in that same hall you and I were standing in, um, you know, then they get what they want politically. And having a free constitutional republic is not what they favor because it does not allow them to do what they want to do, which is I love you know, raise another form of tyranny. I'll, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I'm finished. I, I, I will say this. I love that uh, you use the word charges. I feel like we're having a mid colonial uh, conversation here, which is great. Um, Richard, you know, when we were down in Philadelphia, someone came up to you and I was like, oh, is this guy joking on him or something? And he's like, no, I'm actually with uh, so-and-so Minutemen. And it's like, does that happen a lot where you get other reenactors undercover come up to you? Well, there was one other fellow there, very active down in uh, in the Virginia area in the Southern Campaigns and up here too. He was dressed like I was, but he came in after. Um I don't remember. Now, I remember a few conversations that day. This fellow was not dressed in period clothing, was he? He was dressed in like a white T-shirt, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, once in a while, very rarely, I'll run into somebody because we obviously, because when we travel, we don't all travel that way. It is quite an encumbrance to have all that clothing and those accoutrements to keep track of them. Uh, and um, so once in a while, I do run into somebody. Uh, once in a while, I'm at an event myself. Um, and I'm walking around, and uh, I may run into somebody there. I may even be dressed, and it may come up a conversation, um, you know, what what I do. Uh, but, yeah, you know, once in a while, not, not too often, though. Usually at events like that, uh, most of our people uh, would be dressed for it, or they would be elsewhere. You know, they'd be doing other things, either with their families or other events they're, they're commemorating in clothing itself. Now, you're obviously dealing on the set with live, live muskets. They obviously are blanks. But when you hear Alec Baldwin like try and deny he shot a live thing, as a reenactor, that kind of thing must drive you absolutely crazy. It does. We have to be so safe. Uh, not all of us are, but most all of us are, and it's a rarity where we have a mishap. Uh, even to the wadding you can put in your gun. Some reenactors, and I do different periods, but uh, primarily Revolutionary War. Um, they will have the wadding still in their gun because we don't have ball because it would come with the cartridge paper, which would have been waxed in the day, powder, and then the ball, which would have been the bullet projectile that would go in there. Now, we don't have ball. It's not even allowed on the field. It's an unwritten rule. We just don't have it on the field. And you have to be very careful. What happened with Baldwin? He had a live round in the chamber, and, you know, they got reckless. He got reckless. And there's no doubt that he was culpable for what had happened. Uh, and we would be, too, if something had happened. We've had people killed primarily in civil war, but we've had other accidents, too, uh, where people injured themselves or 
you know, you would have these things with the wadding. You, you, you probably saw, I don't know if you saw it at the Constitution Center in the grounds there when they were doing, um, you know, a drill. You know, we check the weapons. We inspect the weapons to make sure before we fire them, everything's in good order. And if it's not, we step back and we make sure whatever needs to be fixed is fixed. All right, Rich, I've got to ask you this then, because obviously you're a veteran at this, but the youngsters that come into the reenactment troop, if you will, do they frustrate you? Do you try and mentor them? Are they are they a little stubborn with this uh, weaponry? No. Um, the reenactment game is unusual. It tends to be an older man's game. What I mean by older is, you know, mid to late 30s on average, older. I, I got in on the young side, and when I got in, I was uh, 38. Uh, not quite even 30. I was 37 still, but almost 38. And I was on the younger side. Um, we do have some younger people who join. Uh, when you have new people who join, uh, the groups I belong to, one of them was a cannon unit, so we didn't do a lot with muskets with them, but a little bit. Uh, but the cannon's another situation. You had to be very safe around it. And with the horses, we used pistols mostly, but we also had muskets or carbines. Um, people would be trained in those particular units I was a member of. And, and most of the ones I work with, they, they work really diligently. There are some that don't quite make it up to speed, and that can be frustrating when you have people out there that don't know what they're doing. They may not be safe, but that's not always rookies. Usually people that join, we bring them up to speed, and they make sure that they're on the game. And, of course, we have to renew ourselves. You have to train all the time because you can get rusty, particularly after you're not doing it for a while like we had during that You know, I'm just wondering how how your family is dealing with this as you, you know, you're a veteran, you're getting older on the field. Do they still love that you do this? What's their passion for history like compared to yours? Uh, They do. Um, I'm not married. I don't have children. Oh, and if if I had, typically these these kids would probably be in their mid-20s by now if I had. And so what would have happened when they – they, yeah, we like what you're doing, or two, they're ambivalent to it, or three, they would probably join themselves, and we do have that in some cases where people, family members will join and, and, and work. It's just not all the time, but it does happen. It's not it's not unusual or unheard of. Uh, but my other relatives, oh, yeah, I mean, my clientele, I'm a, I'm a financial advisor by trade, uh, and I don't even talk about it a whole lot, but I, quite often the ones who know me the best will always ask me what my next reenactment is because they love this stuff. They love hearing about it. Uh, family members That's very too, cool, you know? by the way. Yeah, yeah, it is. It it just goes to show, um, you know what, you know what it entails and how people really think of it. And of course, we were there at a good crowd. Ironically, I don't know if your listeners realize this, but when you and I were in the assembly chambers, we were there roughly around the time the declaration would have been signed. Um, at that been, moment, and I was so excited, my heart was beating a little faster. I got to be honest. We the reason we know that is with daylight savings time, and we have to do this in Lexington because in the spring when the clocks go back, we have to adjust everything an hour. So the declaration debate started, uh, the final one on the, uh, on the 4th for the signing, would have been between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock, and they had a couple of other smaller items, one before, well, big items, but not long in duration for discussing, one before and one after. So we were there. When we got into the assembly hall, it was maybe quarter after 20 after 9, and we were there for good, 15 minutes of talk, and you and I were there for probably another 10 minutes after that, talking to people. And um, so, yeah, we were there at that time, and it's neat, because the last time I was there, I was there with my brother, we were there. I, I worked it at that point deliberately to be there at that time. Uh, this other time, I wanted to, but it just 
providential we happened to be in there at that point. But yeah, very that, providential that indeed. You know, Rich, I gotta I gotta say I'd love to have you back. By the way, in case anybody's wondering, and I think I said this on my podcast, do you know in 2026 when it's gonna be 250, uh, 2024, yeah, 26, when it's the 250th anniversary, the you know, obviously Philly's gonna have their Independence Day, but then the All-Star Game is in Philly to commemorate that. And yes, I'm very excited that baseball will be on display uh, just a week after the fourth. That's gonna be very special, and I hope to get down there for that. No, that'll be good, and I'm hoping when they when they're out there, they honor them appropriately. Uh, it's good to have attention brought to it, and I'm hoping by that point, or praying by that point, that it's done in the spirit it's supposed to be done with and commemorating and celebrating our country. And that's that's very important for our people. All right, a couple more things. Francis Scott Key, he wrote, that is the American Revolution he was writing about, right? Or was that a different battle? That was the War of 1812. His father had been in the American Revolution, but it was the War of 1812. That I didn't know. So see, I'm learning stuff from you as we talk here. All right, you know, one last thing, because we were in a political sphere, and obviously July 4th, America's become just too political for my taste, I'm sure for yours as well. But when someone sees, oh, well, the former president gets raided or it's the 40th anniversary of Nixon's resignation, those might be black marks on on the nation, but you can't let that totally upend your love of America, right? When you go through the struggle of liberty, and our struggle for liberty started in England centuries before it came to our shores, but it continued here. We've go through gyrations like this. And it's interesting. I forgot because I remember when Nixon resigned. That was about just before the bicentennial, actually. Um, and it's ironic. I wonder if that raid on Trump wasn't coincidentally set. So, they so could, it seems you know, that that's what others are speculating. Yeah, I would not be surprised at all. Um, and, and those things we have to take seriously. I think it's abhorrent. I will be blatant about it. Uh, about it. And the other thing, too, is it's funny that the, the the, the public servants who more in line try to govern us within a constitution are the ones that are getting pushback. We still have anti-constitutional uh, forces today, the way we had back in those days and even before. It's the same fight. If you look at Great Britain, it's the same thing going on there right now and around the world. But I, I mention it because of the common law, the English common law. And in the future, that would be a good po- po- podcast to do. What brought this all about and what was the genesis and the history of all of this? Oh, yeah, we have to break this down a little more for people because it's such a, a thing to unpack. And I just I love that we, you know, I feel like I've known you for a few years already. I just met you last month on July the 3rd and July 4th. So that that was special. All right, Rich, uh, I am so glad I got to spend some time with you today on this. Please do come back. Is there an Instagram, a website, an email? How can they reach out to you um, for even your well, services as a reenactor? Yeah, well, I, I'm a... Um I, I do have a page on Facebook, believe it or not. Uh, and it's R.J. Howell. Um, I, I, I really don't do a lot on, on the social media, but I do post pictures like what you and I would have done. Uh, so they can reach me that way. Um, my contact information is there, too. Uh, certainly, if anybody is interested, I mean, you have my contact information. You can share it with anybody that may want to know more about you know, what it is I do or the people that work with me do. Uh, we're always in something. I'm going to be doing a speech up in Massachusetts for the Sons of the American Revolution on the 15th of, um, of April. And I'll be making a swing through the South through all the old Southern battlefields the month after. So there's always activity. 
Rich, thank you so much. And we will be in touch with you for sure. And uh, please do come back. Looking forward to more conversation. I, I as well, Alex. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm Alex Garrett, where we're always adapting. And yeah, we love a little history here on the podcast as well. We'll talk to you soon.